It's the summer of 1980, and languishing radio station KQKQ is starting down a path that will change its history forever. The new Sweet 98 was destined for fame and fortune, but it didn't start out that way. The beginnings were very humble in a rundown building at 36th and Broadway in Council Bluffs. It was in a rough part of town. It was right across from a bar. Uh, there was always lots of police activity across the street. But before long, that all changed. You wanted to be around. It was so much fun. Indeed, the evolution of that radio station from worst to first has to be one of the best rags-to-riches stories of the metro area. And that's our topic today on Accidentally Historic. Back, 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 back. Step into our time machine. Real stories of real people. Some good, some bad, some very strange. And all accidentally historic. Hello and welcome to Accidentally Historic, a podcast of the Historical Society of Pottawatomie County. I'm your host, Richard Warner. Today, we're talking about a radio station that started in Council Bluffs that became very, very successful. Indeed, by the late 1980s, KQKQFM, known by then as Sweet 98, was at the top of the ratings. The whole operation just screamed high class. The building was spacious and augmented with such things as doorknobs in the shapes of gold records and office light fixtures imported from Europe and, of course, the most modern studio equipment. But it wasn't always that way at KQKQ. In the spring of 1980, the ratings were at the opposite end of the spectrum. Cash flow was poor, and the operation was headquartered in a dilapidated two-story former apartment building at 36th and West Broadway in Council Bluffs. There wasn't even a sign on the building. It was that kind of place you drove past and didn't even notice. Then, Sweet 98 came along and everything changed for the better. There were just three people on the staff that made the transition from those bad old low-ratings days to the new Sweet 98, and all three are right here, tremendous about how it all came about. We've got Kevin Casera, known on the air as Special K. Kevin was morning host on the AM side, a soul music-oriented format called The Wizard. Jay Hagard, in days like these on The Wizard, it's 13 and a half till 8 o'clock, Tuesday morning with Special K. Kevin later moved to FM as a morning show breakfast flake. Also with us is Bob Warner. Bob was a full-time student at Creighton University Medical School, but worked part-time at the station, pulling evening and weekend shifts both before and after the format change. And that leaves me, Dick Warner. I went from overnights on the old format to become half of the first Sweet 98 morning team, Mark and Dick the Breakfast Flakes. The other half of that team was a new hire, Mark Evans. He was brought to town specifically for morning drive. Sweet 98 is KQKQFM Council Bluffs, Omaha. We're playing the Metro's favorite music all summer long. Before 8 with the Breakfast Flakes. Mark and Dick, rock and roll. Now, I won't sugarcoat the facts any. In those few years prior to the formation of Sweet 98, things had not been going so well for the radio station. The station had been operating out of an old house on Minster Street near downtown Council Bluffs. The house wasn't anything fancy, but it served the purpose, until the property owner, First Christian Church next door, decided to tear it down so they could expand their own building. This forced a rather hasty move to a former two-story apartment building on the northwest corner of 36th and Broadway in Council Bluffs. Kevin Casera remembers, in a lot of ways, that new facility was a do-it-yourself project. It was a largely hand-built from inside out. We, as part of the staff, I remember tearing walls down, you know, 
hammer and chisel and it's like watching HGTV with them tearing the insides of that building out and we were doing it ourselves. Bob Warner recalls it wasn't exactly what you'd call a step up. It was in a rough part of town. It was right across from a bar. And, of course, there again, working all nights. Uh, there's always lots of police activity across the street. Well, you know, coming from the old building on Minster Street, initially we thought, wow, we have a dedicated building that doesn't look like a house. My first surprise was I remember running water in the sink and distinctly about five seconds later hearing water run someplace. And I couldn't figure it out well. Of course, I, I'm working nights. And in the new building, we found out there weren't a lot of lights there. The lights were just, bulbs were just put in on an as-needed basis. So I basically took a flashlight. So what I'd do is I'd run water in the sink and then run around and see where the water was coming from. And sure enough, there was just a pipe in a room that was about maybe three, four foot off the ground that was just running in, ending blindly and just dripping on the floor. All, so all the sink water was just running out of the floor. So that was my first experience with the building where they did work on setting up the air studio. They were actually pretty well done. Ah, yes, those bathrooms. I was doing the overnight show one morning, entered the bathroom about 3 a.m. and pulled the door shut behind me only to hear the disheartening sound of the knob falling to the floor on the other side. And realizing I was the only one in the building and am now locked inside a second-floor bathroom. But using my car keys and the light of a street lamp coming in through the dirty window and a little ingenuity, I was able to eventually get the mechanism to open. But it took a while. Oddly, there was no lock on the back door of the building, which seemed like it was inviting trouble. The place was right opposite the notorious Joker Lounge on West Broadway, which, being the closest Iowa bar to Omaha, had gained quite a bit of notoriety for being the place already drunk Nebraskans came if they needed another hour to party. Remember, in those days, Iowa bars were open one hour later than Nebraska bars. Also, it was the place that drew the new drinkers. Iowa drinking age was one year lower than Nebraska. So I devised my own lock by drilling a hole in the floor just on the inside of the doorway. Then I'd drop a railroad spike in there after the last of the evening crew left and took it out before the morning folks came in. It actually worked rather well. With the exception of the one night, I heard somebody trying to break in, so I called the police. Turned out it was my boss, who'd apparently just come from the bar and was trying to break in, apparently with the plan of sleeping it off at the station. But that's a whole nother story. The building had no sign. The only possible clues that it was anything other than a rather creepy apartment building was a handful of really odd-looking antennas on the roof that sent our programming to the transmitters, picked up networks, and that sort of thing. Things were not going well for the station at that time. Actually, it rather appeared we were about to go broke any minute. The situation definitely called for desperate measures. Behind the scenes, owner John Mitchell set wheels in motion to create what would transform the station into the incredibly successful Sweet 98. Sweet 98 was cheery, upbeat, and played the most popular songs. Prior to the switch to Sweet 98, the name was similar. We called ourselves KQ98, but the format couldn't have been much different. KQ98 was the unsweet 98, or I guess you could turn that around the other way. It was truly album-oriented rock. There were two turntables, and uh, you would track... A, a longer song potentially, and then you would speak rather softly, uh, and you wouldn't talk over the record. This is a, a in very sharp and intentional contrast to Top 40. The promo we used, Mark Andrews put together, was the old George Carlin bit, W-I-N-O, you know, W-W-W-I-I-I-N-O, and he, he does this really good uh, mimicking Top 40. Wonderful. 
Big sound in the big town. And then Mark Andrews' voice comes on sounding kind of disgusted. There's an awful lot of that. Think of it as anti-Top 40. This is, uh, there's always been a generation gap. And if you remember like the old uh, show WKRP in Cincinnati, which if you do remember the way it started, it's every young person's dream. It's classical music playing and somebody just ripped the stylus across the record and put on a rock song. That's, I think, what uh, KQ98 was. It was the anti-Top 40. Remember some Top 40 stations would actually speed up records a little bit and you talk quickly well that's Paul Revere the Raiders for you here you know instead it would be featuring Jeff Beck that was cream up next we're going to hear from Led Zeppelin featuring Robert Plant with then you'd start the record and I, I really think a lot of it was it was the untop 40 if you remember we had a consultant for the FM it was a very low-key announcer style just very simple and good evening this is and here's Led Zeppelin mm-hmm. they didn't like me because I have the I can have the boisterous voice, you know. The listeners and the uh, people at the time very much looked down on Top 40 Radio. They thought they were cool, uh, and this is something that's different. They wanted us to get out of the way and play the music. I barely hung on. Now, I do want to emphasize that listenership was not a problem. We not only had listeners, they were the most loyal listeners you could imagine. They were the young adult males, and we were definitely their station. Target a specific audience sell advertising to merchants that drew that audience. So you didn't have to be, you know, the best to everybody or even have the most people. You just have had to have the right category where you could get merchants who were willing to spend money to get those advertising to those people. And therein was the problem. That category of people didn't necessarily have a lot of money or spend a lot of money, so it may not have uh, worked all that well. In a nutshell, Album-oriented, progressive rock KQ98 had a big audience of young adult males. But there weren't enough sponsors willing to buy advertising to reach that audience to make us profitable. Big advertisers of that time were Brandeis, Nebraska Furniture Mart, and a variety of clothing stores. They told our sales staff they wanted female listeners before they'd become sponsors. Management decided a format change was necessary. Owner John Mitchell hired Bill Cunningham, first as a consultant, then as general manager of the entire operation. Bill Cunningham would be, to me, kind of a, uh, you know, Barnum and Bailey gentleman. He was an entrepreneur, flashy, enjoyed the limelight, uh, but was very clever, very smart. He could do magic tricks. He was a salesman with entertainment flair. I think Bill thought that he could have been the best DJ, or would have been if that's what he was doing. Bill Cunningham assembled an almost entirely new staff, drawn from talent taken from around the country. At the first staff meeting of Sweet 98, before it was actually even on the air, Cunningham described his vision for the station this way. He said, we will become to the 1980s what KOIL was to the 1960s. Now, if you younger listeners to this podcast missed the 1960s, let's just say that Coil, which also started in Council Bluffs, by the way, totally dominated in ratings and revenue. Bill Cunningham had worked for Coil a decade before coming to Sweet 98, and apparently had picked up on the tips and tricks of Coil's owner, Don Burden, while he was there. If one had to describe the approach in one word, that one word would likely be promotion. Bill knew that grandiose promotions helped drive things. So, as you recall, we went 
and gave away $98,000. And no one in Omaha had done anything like that ever. To me, the, the biggest uh, deal that made it a difference was the promotions. The things that we did to involve the listeners with call-ins, with the giveaways, and they were always coming up with another way to get people involved on the air. There was a lot more interaction. There were probably several years when the only interaction you had with anyone over the telephone was to take a request. And you did that off from the air. With Sweet 98, they were on the air. There was a lot of the listener involvement and the promotion stuff on the air. And characters. Big guy. That was a Cunningham creation. He created this character to run the giveaway. One thing that uh, Bill Cunningham brought to Sweet 98 was it was supposed to be fun. He'd go after you when you when he wasn't happy with what you were doing. But if you weren't having fun, he he was he'd just bring that up. Uh, Wingy and I a couple of times we're we're getting in we're we're a little like critical of each other almost a little bit on the air, discussing something or other or or having opposite uh, viewpoints on something. And uh, he calls him and said, "You got to stop that. You're supposed to be having fun." So the radio was just, it was a lot of fun on and off. We used to do audio things. I did some video things uh, mm-hmm. that we played at the, at Christmas parties. Once we got to 10th and Farnham, we had uh, lots of visiting uh, entertainers. We had people playing the piano down in the, mm-hmm. in the foyer there. It was almost more fun than you could handle. I worked, I worked so many hours and didn't really think about it. I remember one time the, the bookkeeper said uh, something about how many hours I put in. I said, really? Well, you, you wanted to be around. It was so much fun. Our first big promotion was a $50,000 giveaway. One became eligible for the drawing simply by answering the telephone. I listened to the new sound of Sweet 98. Then came the $98,000 giveaway that Kevin was talking about. All one had to do to enter was put a green bumper sticker on their car. We called it a stickificate. The air staff then took turns cruising the metro in the Central Buick Roving Riviera. When we saw a car with one of our stickificates on the bumper, we'd call into the studio via a brand new device I'd never seen before called a cell phone. We'd read that car's license plate on the air, and then that driver had 15 minutes to pull over to a safe stop, and we'd award him a prize. Then came the $98,000 lineup. We had a viewing platform erected at Crossroads Mall and invited cars with their bumper sticker to drive past. And we counted them. The 98,000th car to drive past would receive $98,000. It was all that simple. Now, Mr. Cunningham was a firm believer in that old adage, there's no such thing as bad publicity in show business. And he got it. Staging a lineup of 98,000 automobiles at the most congested and busiest intersection in Omaha was sure to attract attention. And it did. Every news media outlet in town came out to report on the biggest traffic jam in Omaha history. Mr. Cunningham positively loved it. In fact, he had a large framed aerial photograph of that traffic disaster proudly displayed on the wall of his private office back at the radio station. Kevin's right. Mr. Cunningham loved the limelight. Calling himself on the air generous manager Will Honeylamb, he would frequently telephone us on the private studio hotline during the show and ask to be put on the air to tease his latest big promotion or great idea. Uh, Mr. Honeylamb. You know, we've asked people to keep the uh, certificates on, and there, of course, is a zany reason for that. People that have certificates on their cars, they're supposed to keep them there. Oh, yeah, keep them, because there's something that's... uh, I'm really exciting, Brewing. It's going to be a killer. We're going to have so 
much fun with this one. Mr. Honeylamb, yeah. go back to brushing your teeth, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. It's 833 with the Pointer Sisters. That recording was from May 1981, so it was probably the first public hint of that upcoming $98,000 lineup that we were just talking about. Another novel promotion was Supermouth, an on-the-air talent contest decades before American Idol or America's Got Talent. Take auditions from people over the air, judge them over the air, and end up hiring one of them. We ran it four or five times. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really, a a couple of them stuck. Hot Scott uh, stayed with Mm -hmm. the radio station for a long time, and um, Alan Bone. The disc jockeys at Sweet 98 weren't just mechanical creatures spinning records. We were expected to be personalities. Now, Mr. Cunningham dictated exactly what that personality would be, of course, I was supposed to be the somewhat brainy, albeit naive, breakfast flake, and generally was cast to play the straight man to Mark Evans, my much more worldly colleague. You know, I think it worked rather well. We were on stage to open every concert in town, sharply attired in tuxedos supplied by the radio station. On the 4th of July, Mark and I opened the fireworks display at Rosenblatt Stadium by riding once around the outfield, then to center stage on horseback, dressed as Robert E. Lee and General Grant. Okay, that sounds like the Civil War, and isn't Fourth of July typically the Revolution? But remember, we only work there, and do as one is told and don't ask questions was a very good strategy to keep out of trouble in those days. There was always something going on for showmanship. One time I broadcast live from a limousine as it carried me from the radio station to Peony Park's grand reopening, where I continued my show from the site of the ribbon cutting at the park. Now I'm going to take the high road here and not complain that the limo dropped me off at Peony Park with no way to get back to the station where my car was parked after the show, uh, but that's a different story. I had the privilege of serving as a Sweet 98 breakfast flake for exactly one year. Sweet 98 is KQKQFM, Council of Omaha with more music and better variety. In the fall of 1981, I left the full-time post to go to dental school, but I continued at Sweet 98 part-time for another decade as host of the Sunday morning oldie show, Nostalgia Rock. Nostalgia Rock. Sweet 98. Nostalgia Rock. KQKQ. With Dr. Dick Warner. Kevin Cassara took over my breakfast flake duties using the name Special K. Sweet 98 was an almost instant hit. Why was it so successful? You know, I have to give a lot of credit to General Manager Bill Cunningham. Frankly, he wasn't the easiest man to work for, but he had a vision, and he saw that every detail was carried out to perfection. Some may call it micromanaging, perhaps, but Mr. Cunningham was involved in the details of virtually every facet of the radio station. Of course, the real credit probably belongs even higher up, though. After all, it was owner John Mitchell's idea to create the format in the first place. I have tremendous respect for John Mitchell, the owner. I remember a friend of mine who knew John said that uh, this radio station is going to do well with Mr. Mitchell in charge because he's really good. And he was right. I doubted him at first because I didn't understand Mr. Mitchell's techniques, but he made two massive successes over time. The FM first, then the AM turned out to be massively successive, largely by reinventing themselves. And I think it was... uh... Uh, Mr. Mitchell, God bless him, was was true to his people as much as he could be. He took care of us uh, as individuals. He he was around. As an owner, he wasn't somebody you never saw. Before we wrap it up, let's tie up a couple of loose ends. We noted that the talent was brought in from all around the country to create Sweet 98. 
We also explained when Suite 98 started, the studios and building were, well, let's say, in a condition that may have caused a person to think twice about agreeing to take a job here. So just how was Bill Cunningham able to convince personalities from out of town to relocate here after they saw the dilapidated facilities? Simple. He didn't show them. When my morning show co-host Mark Evans was being recruited, he was flown into town for the afternoon. According to Mark's story, Mr. Cunningham drove him all over Omaha and Council Bluffs, showing off the sights of our great cities, but ran out of time and had to take him directly back to the airport before he could show him the actual radio station. Another thing. What became Sweet 98 had a long history in Council Bluffs. In fact, it was actually the very first FM radio station in the state of Iowa, founded by the Naparel way back in 1947. So how and why did it end up in Omaha? Well, given the population of Council Bluffs versus the population of Omaha, the reality is, in order to score well in the ratings, a bluff station needs to attract a goodly number of Omaha listeners. One theory for those lackluster ratings prior to Sweet 98 was that there was a certain anti-Council Bluffs bias in the metro, that people in Omaha would be less inclined to listen to a radio station that broadcast from Council Bluffs. Now, the station couldn't just move to Omaha. In those days, the rule was the majority of the programming had to originate in the city of license, which was Council Bluffs. But there wasn't any law against creating an illusion to the contrary. In the late 1970s, the station moved its business operation, but not the studios, to Omaha, leading to an obvious, although erroneous, perception that the station had moved across the river. Omaha became the new mailing address, and the place one went to pick up a prize they might have won on the air. Kevin Cassara notes, we avoided mention of Council Bluffs at all on the air, except when we had to, that being the the top-of-the-hour station legal ID. We had never said Council Bluffs except once an hour when you had to say your ID. That's right. Mm -hmm. Other than that, we never said it. A bit of trivia about the call letters, KQKQ. When Kevin, Bob, and I started at the station, it was KRCB. Call letters selected a couple of decades earlier to stand for Radio Council Bluffs. As we just mentioned, whether justified or not, the station's association with Council Bluffs was something management was seeking to downplay at this particular period of time. So, new call letters were sought. They even put up a sheet on the bulletin board for staff suggestions. The call sign KQKQ was selected. Now, we disc jockeys, of course, weren't invited to those high-level management meetings, so I can't say for sure why KQKQ was chosen. Now, it was trendy around the country about that time to go for call letters with those less common letters like Zs and Qs. But our theory was the calls were setting us up to go quadraphonic. Think about it. Stereo replaced mono, so it seemed almost a given that 4-channel would replace stereo. A quad station with two Qs in the call letters would certainly have a nice promotional advantage. Right about this time, there was a lot of interest in quad. For a short period of time, records and 8-track tapes routinely were being released in quadraphonic. And I do remember engineering installing two additional loudspeakers in the control room in preparation for our move to 4-channel. Quad never really took off, for a lot of reasons, beyond the scope of this podcast, though I guess one could say the concept resurfaced a decade or two later in home theater systems under the name Surround Sound, but never for radio. The station used two Omaha locations during this period. The first was the old KMTV building on Farnham, then a small building near the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Now, those were just business offices. All this time, the studios and programming remained in Council Bluffs at 36th and Broadway in that totally unlabeled building. 
In time, the Federal Communications Commission did relax the rules, and the studios were moved from Council Bluffs to Omaha at 1001 Farnham on the Mall, 10th and Farnham, just north of the Old Market. By this time, success had come. No more dingy facilities. The building was pristine with the center atrium, door handles in the shapes of gold records, and light fixtures imported from Europe. The new Sweet 98 studio was truly unique and very visible. Because you were radio, and you, you would think of radio as not being visual. The studio was right, right in, in the, the windows, window. and they made it a phenomenal place. Called it the Starship it's sort of a thing with the raising the studio floor. The control panel was actually eight feet in the air or nine feet in the air. And there was a, a lift to get the DJ up to where he yes. could mm-hmm. operate the controls. Uh, but again, right in public eye, it, was, it became visual as well as an audio medium. So what we started in that unlabeled old apartment building with the dysfunctional plumbing and no locks on the doors back in the summer of 1980 grew and grew and grew and became a phenomenal success. I stayed with the station until 1991, then busied myself with my dental practice in Council Bluffs. I'm retired now and do volunteer projects for the Historical Society, um, like this podcast series, for example. Kevin remained until 1999, then headed for the Sun Belt to live his retirement dream of becoming a golf pro. Bob Warner became a physician and remained in radio until the 21st century as host of the long-running medical talk program, House Calls, which ran on KMA. Time now on KMA for Dr. Robert Warner and House Calls. Good morning and welcome to House Calls. I'm Dr. Robert Warner from Heartland Oncology and Hematology. Bob Warner said he saw radio change a lot in these recent years. The biggest change, I think, was uh, computers, just like for so many things in life. It's all off the computer. So the studio itself is very Spartan-looking, really, because you don't have turntables, you don't have cassette machines, you don't have, uh, you know, real-to-real machines or anything. Uh, As far as how how radio itself has changed, more from the listener's perspective, again, largely, I think, because of computers— you have much, much, much less local programming. Now there's more stations, but you know your air staff may consist of a morning show, and that's it. Everything else, you're 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 carrying the network all the time. You're you don't have somebody down there spinning discs overnight like they would have, like we did in the old days. Uh, and I think that's the biggest change is there's much, much, much less local, and uh, many, many less people involved. Well, thanks for hanging out with us and reminiscing about those very, very early days of the creation of Sweet 98. There's lots of good Sweet 98 stories. I mean, we barely scratched the surface. We definitely have to do more podcasts on the subject. I mean, we never even talked about Sprite Night or the Nostalgia Hop or some of our great personalities like Captain Tony, Hot Scott, Dave Winger, Jem and Jay Taylor, Greg MacArthur, Rocket in the Morning, and so many, many others. So be sure and subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss out on any future episodes. To really learn the local radio story, be watching for a new ebook called The History of Omaha Radio. It's a three-part series by one-time coil good guy Carl Mann. Now, at the time of this recording, it hasn't been completed yet, but I've seen some excerpts, and it promises to be very, very good. You've been listening to Accidentally Historic, a podcast produced by the Historical Society of Pottawatomie County. Mariel Wagner is our president. Our museum's manager is Cat Slaughter. I'm Dick Warner. Listening to Sweet 98, feeling good and sounding great on KQKQ.